Hey there, Vox community. Mike here. Um, still unpacking. Our, the moving truck finally got here last week. Uh, if you're getting this on a Monday, it was here last Thursday. So we're still we're still surrounded in boxes, and the podcast stuff is still buried somewhere. Um, so uh, we're going to release episode two today of uh, Sex, Love, and God. It's called "I Delight to Sit in His Shade." Ooh, some of it will be familiar to you if you've been a regular listener, I think. But again, I mean, I, I feel like I have to still put the standard disclaimers um, out there that, uh, you know, in, in four years, I, I think I would nuance some of this stuff a little differently. But um, you get a feel for what the event was, the questions that were coming in, and hope it's helpful. Got a great response from episode one. So here's episode two. Um, and, uh, hope you enjoy it. Um, again, thank you so much for your support through this transition. Thank you for your grace. We've got a whole heck of a lot to talk about, uh, North Korea, Charlottesville. Um, there's a lot happening in our world right now. And, um, and so as soon as we can get back set up, we'll be recording again, um, uh, with Andy. Some of you, some of you are very clear. You don't want Andy to go away, which, you know, I'm, it still boggles my mind, but I get it. I get it. Um, he is, he's a soft voice and he's got long hair and he's got beautiful brown eyes. So I understand that. Um, um, other than that, my brothers and sisters, I'm just so grateful for you and grateful we get to be a part of your life. Continue to give us uh, your feedback uh, at voxpodcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, thanks again. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Um, if you have a Bible, let's go to Song of Songs. Chapter 1 is where we're going to go. And uh, if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. I uh, want to remind you of a couple of things. Number one, there will be a, a time of volume adjustment, evidently, in the middle of the uh, talking. Uh, there will be a time for Q&A. And um, as as Superbly demonstrated last week, no question is off limits. Um, there was some stuff that flashed on the screens at EV Free Fullerton that I don't think has ever been on the screens <laughs> at EV Free Fullerton, and, um, and, and we think ultimately that's a good thing. So we want to create a community that is honest about these sorts of issues. Secondly, I want to let you know that uh, if you go to our website, there is a kind of a sub grouping around sex, love, and God, and you can ask a question there. You can have a link to uh, counseling resources. Uh, we have a pretty substantial uh, care team that um, is interested in not only praying, but helping and shaping and forming and walking with those of you who um, are experiencing in the midst of this some pretty incredibly difficult stuff. Uh, and then uh, there's a, a link there, too, to tell your story. If God's doing some stuff, we would love to hear about it. Um, as last week, we will have some folks up here and also in the prayer room afterwards. Uh, sexuality, relationships, that whole thing is so embedded in the human psyche that when there's damage to us, abuse, to us, whether it's self-inflicted or whether it's been inflicted by other people, I mean, it takes a lot of work 
to overcome that. We believe the grace of Jesus and the truth of Jesus can lead us out into freedom, but we also recognize that's usually a long, arduous process. And so we're gonna have folks available always to talk, to pray, to listen, uh, to provide resources if that's something that's interested to you. One of the things that I was really uh, encouraged by was um, the age range of the folks that were um, here. And I got a, uh, an email from an 80-something-year-old. And I just thought this was, this was really cool. My friend and I, now I'm going to edit it because she was uh, very nice to me. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't want that to get out. But, but uh, this person said, my friend and I had quite a discussion on apologizing for the church that has been silent on this issue. Because one of the things we've been talking about is, is how, uh, in some ways, we've really allowed a generation to grow into sexual identity and understanding without much input from the community of faith. It's been more media-driven. It's been more celebrity-saturated. We have not done a very good job. And so, so she goes on. She says, we talked about how our generation, in quotes, was silent on most every issue. As a general rule, parents never sat down with their children to discuss anything. Neither our parents or we were an open generation. As a general rule, neither was affection, such as hugs and kisses given from parents to children. Neither was there a display of affection given within a congregation of a church. That was just the way life was in that day. This day in which we live is, all caps, so entirely different. Life and feelings are, all caps, out in the open. I think we of the older folk, how, is, how awesome is that? I think we of the older folk realize this conversation today is necessary. And so if you are here and you're an 80-something, 70-something, 60-something, we not only are thrilled that you are here because of the stories that you can tell, but we're thrilled to have your blessing on a conversation like this. Because in some ways, it's a conversation that, that can be threatening. Uh, and can be a bit scandalous uh, because churches aren't known for discussing these sorts of things. So with that, um, we're going to dive into Song of Songs. But before we do, the internet is a wonderful place. And I found some pictures um, online of some of the most sexist vintage ads in the history of the universe. Okay, so... If your husband ever finds out you're not store testing for fresher coffee, evidently that will happen. <laughs> now, I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm usually in bed with my tie on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's just... You don't dress down for your significant other, you dress up, you know? Is that not horrible? I mean, I, I had to go fact check that these were actually real. Christmas morning, she'll be happier with a Hoover. I'm editing so much right now. The chef does everything but cook. That's what wives are for. And evidently the chef is that little contraption there. 
So the harder a wife works, the cuter she looks. Now, now, if you're here and you're single and you intend on staying that way, just go ahead and say those were the days. Go ahead and, and, and think that's the way it should be. And if you're married and intend on staying married, you may want to. Don't worry, darling, you didn't burn the beer. She's crying because she's burned the dinner. But it's okay because Schlitz doesn't burn. Now, I thought those would be an interesting, that would be an interesting way to start. Because very often when the church talks about gender issues or um, uh, the way men and women are to relate, the church makes one of two mistakes. We either reinforce cultural stereotypes like those, or we go to the opposite extreme and pretend like the Bible doesn't make any differentiation between men and women at all. And so we want tonight to spend a little time walking the fine line between not stereotyping uh, and not reinforcing cultural stereotypes either direction. Because on the one hand, the scriptures, contrary to popular opinion, are not repressive and oppressive. But on the other hand, there are distinctions between male and female. And we have to be so careful that we don't subtly, as we talk about these things, play into the stereotypes those crazy ads represented. And so we're going to wade into some controversial stuff tonight, which, you know, that's what we'll do. Not everyone will agree, and that's just fine. The goal, the goal is to provoke a conversation that goes way beyond this place. So Song of Songs, chapter 1. Now, there are three major players in the Song of Songs. There's the woman, the man, and then friends or daughters of Jerusalem. And remember, she just starts. There's no like intro. It's just boom. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your lovemaking is more delightful than wine. In other words, I'm as intoxicated by your lovemaking as wine would make me intoxicated. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Back then, deodorant wasn't really a thing. And so dudes would have to lather on certain oils to keep themselves aromatically appealing. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name, circle that word, is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. My wife says this a lot. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Now, she interestingly, she says two things right out of the gate. Thing number one, she says, is that she is sexually attracted to this guy. And as we saw last week, if you missed it, it was very, very simple. In the biblical record, human beings are not angels. We're, we're fully human of flesh and blood and have desires. Nor are we animals. Those desires don't have to rule us the way they rule animals. We're human beings. And so the trick in following Jesus is admitting that you've got all of the desires, but not letting them rule you. Now that's, of course, easier said than done. 
But we start with a biblical record. The first command in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. Sex is good. Now, this often isn't said in the church. We usually usually don't say a thing or we just say thou shalt not. The Bible begins with a big old thou shalt. And in the Song of Songs, being physically attracted to somebody isn't a bad thing. So it's not like, single people, you have to say, hey, someone says, what are you looking for uh, in a woman? And you say, well, you know, she's got to be godly and... She wants to go be a missionary and smart. And and then about 14 down on the list, you finally admit she's got to be cute. Right? Or, Or ladies, same with you. I mean, it's okay. God wired us to be attracted to people. And sometimes I'll meet Christian couples that have dated for months or years, and they just don't have that chemistry. And I just go, well, you're kind of supposed to. I mean, if this is the only person you're going to have sex with the rest of your life, it may be good to be attracted to them. You know, that's just, that's just, somehow we think that isn't spiritual. And so when the woman leads, would let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, she says she's physically attracted to the guy, and that's okay. But she, she also comments on his name. Your name is like perfume poured out. Now, in, in the culture of the day, A name stood for more than what someone called you. It stood for your character. So when she says, your name is is like perfume poured out, she's not saying, I just love the sound of a Solomon. Solomon. (laughs) Solomon. That's That's not what she's saying. She's saying, she's saying that his character is pleasing. Now, ladies, single ladies, some of the older people are going, what's all the murmuring? I'm not so sure. It's Beyonce. That's a different conversation. Single ladies, the key to successful dating is to date a guy long enough to learn his real name, not the name he gives you that you're to call him by, but his character revealed by how he treats you. In other words, and guys, I'm sorry to betray our secrets. I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But I'm married to a foxy woman and the rest of you have to suffer. Because because what we do we are the consummate, we are consummate wooers. And so when we're dating you and we want to win you over, we will put our best foot forward. And then once we've won you, we'll revert back to the 12-year-old we really are. Okay? That is just true. Ask married people if that is not true. So one of the ways to successfully date somebody is to wait for them to show you their real name, how they talk to you, how they treat you when they're angry, how they treat your family, whether or not they're envious of your friends. So she comments that this guy's not only physically attractive, hallelujah, for being physically attracted, but he has a great name. And the word here means something that's etched in stone that will not change. See, when you get married, it's not like you automatically become a different person. 
If, if, if you're lustful before marriage, it's not like all of a sudden that just goes away. If you can't control yourself before marriage, it's not like you get married and all of a sudden, oh yeah, no problem. So you have to get to know the guy's name. She says, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And then these friends speak, and, and we really don't know who these represent. Some think, some, some think it's Solomon's harem commenting on this, which would be odd. But, but uh, whoever they are, they say, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. Then she says, verse uh, 4, how right they are to adore you. Now, we're going to look at this more next week, but notice what she says. She says, dark am I, yet lovely. She, now, this was ancient Near Eastern culture. She, she's not making a racial comment on the darkness of her skin. She's, in those days, the lighter the skin among Mediterranean people, the better. What you didn't want was tanned, leathery skin. I know that's crazy for Southern California people to comprehend. But back in the day, you wanted skin protected from the sun. That was the cultural ideal. She says, dark am I yet lovely, dark like the tents of Kedar, which were a dark purple, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. In other words, I'm lovely, but there's this part of me that I can't stand. Now, isn't it amazing how that's gone away in 3,000 years? How, you know, all of us just feel perfectly comfortable with the way we look. It's just fascinating. So, so she expresses that she's lovely. At the same time, she says, there's this part that I can't stand. Her skin, she says, has been scorched by the sun. She says, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the family vineyard. My own vineyard, her body, I neglected. In other words, she... She was a manual laborer, and in that culture, that was low status. And so for her, she hated being scorched by the sun. It was a fundamental insecurity. Now, she comments some more. Notice what she says in verse 12. We'll come back to this scorched idea in just a second. Chapter 1, verse 12. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me... A sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. And we all know what that is, so I can just keep going. Right? Back in the day, showers weren't incredibly common. Um, uh, there, there weren't like CVS stores with all sorts of hygienic products. And one of the things that you would do to smell good as a woman is you would take a little bag of resin. And you would hang it around your neck and it would rest right here. And you would sleep with it and your body heat would warm up the bag of resin and it would make you smell good. So she says, this guy is attractive, this guy has a great name, and this guy is to me like a sachet of myrrh. He brings out the best in me, in other words. And there's one more image I want you to see. I want to talk about this guy. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 3. So there are three images. He has a great name. He is like a sachet of myrrh. And then notice uh, verse 3. She says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. 
I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Now, we're going to skip the fruit is sweet to my taste part for later, but it is a reference to what you're thinking it's a reference to. But I, wanna, I want to I, I wanna camp on this idea because I think it's the most beautiful and poetic image of the book describing the guy. She says, I delight to sit in his shade. Now, what does shade represent to her? Protection from the sun that has made her ugly in her mind. So she, her body is scorched, it's leathered, it's tanned, it's, it's, it's the, the color of a manual laborer. She says, so I was forced to work outside, I couldn't take care of my own body. The sun scorched me and turned me darker than I would want to be otherwise. But I met this guy and I delight to sit in his shade. Now, do you understand how powerful an image that is to her? In her place of greatest insecurity, he is safe and protective, in other words. So think about those images. Number one, he has a name, a character that will not change. Number two, he brings out the best in me like a bag of resin does overnight. And then thirdly, in a world that is scorched, I delight to sit in his shade. Now what I wanted to do is I want to take that last image and I want to go one other place in the scriptures and talk about the kind of guy of whom it could be said, I delight to sit in his shade. Now some of you are married to guys like this. Some of you are dating guys like this. But then there are others of us who are still wrestling with these sorts of issues. We're going to go to one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go there. I want to talk about where the scripture spends time elucidating what it looks like for a man to be safe so that a woman could say, I delight to sit in his shade. Now, if you are new to church, or you're new to Jesus, or you're pretty skeptical of this whole convo and somehow you got begged, bribed, or manipulated here, we're going to look at a passage that probably will cause your blood to boil until you actually understand what it's saying. So give me 15 minutes and see if I can't convince you that this is indeed good news. All right, Ephesians chapter 5. This is a letter from a man named Paul written to a church in Ephesus, which was a city in Asia Minor in the first century. Paul plants a church there, and he writes instructions. And we're going to look at the most, one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible, talking about how men and women... Now, now here, husbands and wives are going to be central, but if, if, if you're single and, and you don't think this is relevant to you, you are, you are really mistaken. This, if you understand what the end result should look like, that will totally determine how you get there. It will totally determine who, like what kind of guy you want to be in the meantime and what kind of guy you want to date in the meantime. So, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Spirit, and then he lists Five different things that happen when a church is filled with the Spirit. They sing, they make music, they do all of these things. But the one thing usually that gets left off is verse 21. 
Grammatically, in the Greek language in which this was written, verse 21 connects to verse 18 when it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Five things happen. We sing, we make music, we, we make psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I mean, that whole thing happens, but the one thing that is usually neglected is verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, to, of which he is the Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And all the ladies said, Man. If it includes bowing down and serving you breakfast while you're in the bed with a tie on, I'm not sure. Now, what I want to do is I want 10 minutes of painstaking stuff is now upon us. Okay? I'm going to put the Greek translation, the Greek words of this passage up on the screen, and I want you to pay as close attention as possible. Because what you'll see here, I think is pretty crazy. When you read it in English, if you've been raised in the church, you go, yeah, 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 okay, of course. If you've not been raised in the church, you go, well, this is why I would never follow Jesus. This is why I would never be a Christian. This is why I would never have a Christian pastor do my wedding. If this is gonna be the thing at the wedding, really? Submit just means doormat. Submit just means obey. Submit just means accept abuse. And there has been such harm done in the name of this passage. We just admit that right out of the gate. See, to the people who heard this, this was actually revolutionary, and I just want to show you why. All right. It, it's all Greek to me, brothers and sisters. Now, I know, horrible. Now, this word, submit, okay, it's different from the word obey, which Paul uses elsewhere in the letter. The word submit, I mean, we can get into the cool, like, tasso sort of thing. The word means to place in an orderly fashion something under something else, okay? It means to place in an orderly fashion something under something else. It was a word that was used in the culture of the day to mean the proper arrangement of a household, a family, or an empire. Okay? So, you all submitted today. Do you know that? So, let me give you an example. I drive down Bastonchury. All 16 lights down Bastonchury from my house. If I had control, I would have a clicker that turned every light green. The rest of you would have to wait in traffic until I made it through, right? This, if my interests were given leeway, I would want, I would want, the, I would want exclusive use of the carpool lane. I would want exclusive green lights wherever I'm driving, right? But I place my desire under the laws that govern traffic for the common good. In other words, I don't have to stop at a red light. I mean, there's nothing, there's no force field that drops down and makes me stop. I voluntarily hit my brake and submit my interest in not getting, not, not waiting through 16 lights. I submit my interest in getting here fast. I submit that to the common good of traffic law. 
and so I voluntarily stop. In an orderly fashion, I submit my desire to get here quickly under, or I submit it to, the traffic laws. That's what submission means. We do it all the time. Okay? So it doesn't mean doormat. It doesn't, it doesn't mean not have an opinion or be a person. I mean, it just simply means to place, if you want to personalize it, Paul uses it other places to say, place the well-being of another person ahead of your own. That's what it means to submit. All right, so submit one another. Now, this word one another is submission between peers. It's a reciprocal pronoun. In other words, it's not talking about a superior to an inferior. It's not talking about an inferior submitting to a superior. It's between two equals. So submit one another in reverence of Christ. Now, stop right there. Do you see the comma? My English Bible doesn't have a comma. My English Bible simply says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, period. And then there's a, a paragraph break, and a new paragraph started. But in Greek, notice, submit one another in reverence of Christ, comma, the wives, I know, thank you, the wives to their own husbands is to the Lord. Now hold on a second, hold on a second, hold on a second. My English Bible said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, period, paragraph break. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. But hold on. <laughs> the Greek here says, submit one another in reverence of Christ, comma, the wives to their own husbands is to the Lord. Now, do you, you're not seeing the significance of this just yet, are you? Okay, in verse 22, do we have a subject? Come on, grammar folks, do we have a subject? Who? Do we have an object? To their husbands. What piece, what piece of speech, I was going to say, <laughs> what, <laughs> what part of grammar are we missing in that verse? A verb. So the Greek doesn't say, wives submit to your husbands. The Greek simply says, the wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. In other words, the Greek sentences are related to the point where grammatically 22 is dependent on 21. And the only verb we can find, have we come across a verb recently? Sure, submit. So it's called a supplied verb and we put it into verse 22. It's implied there, but it's not explicit. Which means... <laughs> which means... Anybody who wants to quote wives submit to your husbands is doing violence to Paul's thought because grammatically it reads... As a disciple of Jesus, the regular practice of every disciple is to put the well-being of other people ahead of your own, comma, wives do this to your husbands. In other words, you can't quote wives submit to your husbands without first quoting the regular practice of disciples of Jesus' mutual submission. Comma, wives do this to your husbands. And the reason we go Greek on this is because our English Bibles seem to say, 
hey, period, paragraph break, wives, submit to your husbands. And we just want to say, well, yes, it says that. But it's only given as an example of the general principle that comes from being filled with the Spirit that says the general orientation of every disciple of Jesus is to place the well-being of other people ahead of your own, comma, wives, do this to your husbands. Does that change the meaning of the verse a little bit? Boy, it sure does. And so I am sick to death of hearing stories of wives and abusive relationships who here submit to your husbands as an excuse for men to continue their abuse. That's not what this says. I'll go to the wall on this one, brothers and sisters. The Greek is really, really clear. The two verses are connected. So what does it mean for a man to be the kind of man where you could say, I delight to sit in his shade? Well, Paul says... The regular orientation of disciples of Jesus is to place the well-being of other people ahead of your own wives. Do this to your husbands. Why? Back to Ephesians. Are you out there? Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Why? For the husband is head of the wife... And I wish Paul would just stop right there. Right? I mean, it'd be great if he just said, for the husband is head of the wife, period. But he doesn't. As Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, brothers and sisters, in the culture of the day, would this sentence have been in any way offensive? No! Wives, submit to your husbands? That's what they're there for. Right? This culture, the culture this was written in would make those sexist ads look tame by comparison. The man was the head of the household. He had the power of life and death over his family. Okay? It was commonly understood under Roman law that a husband only owed a wife the opportunity to bear children and food and shelter. He would, it, was, it was just understood he would mistresses and prostitutes. Given. Some Roman and Greek writers actually say this. Right? Mistresses are there for pleasure. Handmaids are there for service. And wives are there to bear children. So nobody in the first century would have heard this and gone, Oh, that's horrifying. Wives submit to your husbands. What was revolutionary was what comes next. One sentence, 49 words in Greek, almost triple the instruction given to the wives. That begins, husbands, love your wives. Nobody in the first century would have commanded husbands to do that. All you owed them, opportunity to bear children and a roof over their head. That was it. So you have to understand, what was so revolutionary and so offensive in the first century wasn't wives submit to your husbands. Everyone would have gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. But husbands, love your wives. This was the reason why women flocked to Jesus and men resisted. Seriously. Because Paul took a word, submit, that was only used 
of women and said, hey, the regular practice of every disciple is to do this. Wives, do this to your husbands. Why? Well, the man is head of the wife. Everyone in the first century would go, well, yeah, of course. But check out how he spells out what head means. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ of the church and what? Gave himself up for her. Gentlemen, guess what? You know, I think head means boss. I think head means more important. I think head means get my way. So if you're going to say, so if all Paul said was, hey, the husband is head of the wife, we'd all go, yeah. But he says, as Christ is head of the church. And how was Christ's headship defined? By his sacrifice. So whatever headship means, it means minimally head sacrificer. It means if, if you're a family of four and there's only food for three, you go without. It means if there's something stinky in the garbage, <laughs> right, you're the one taking it out. See, we, we want to... We want to say, hey, the dude is the spiritual leader of the house, and that just means he's got to lead family devotions. No. It's far more radical than that. In other words, until, guys, you have died for your girls, there is still room to grow. Amen? Now, I don't like this. Notice my wife is not here tonight. Because, I mean, would I die for my sweet wife? Absolutely I would die for my sweet wife. There was one time we were newly married. We were in the Garden of the Gods, which I felt very at home. In the Garden of the Gods. Just, <laughs> I don't know. And, and so, so we're hiking around, and one of these out-of-nowhere thunderstorms hits us. And, and we're in the middle of this, like, big plateau overlooking some canyons and this big thunderstorm rolls in and it starts hailing and there's no there's nobody around <laughs> there there is no cover there is nothing and the hail right I and mean, we're talking pea size to golf ball sized hail and so what I do we start tearing down you know the little trail it gets harder and harder and harder so finally we're down kind of at the bottom and there's no place to go and so I grab my wife and do this while the hail just beats the hail out of me, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and I'm, you're welcome. And I'm sitting there, and we're, we're, we're married under a year. And I'm sitting there while this is happening, and, and I'm thinking to myself, wow. I mean, this, no, I mean, in all seriousness, for some of us, like, it was glorious, you know? It was like, yeah, I do this in a second. I mean, if I, if I, if, if anyone ever called me to lay down my life for my family, I'd do it in a heartbeat. If, if it was uh, hijacking, you know, the plane was hijacked and we were making a U-turn to go to the Pentagon and they needed some guy to go run into the door, I'm running into the door. If it's glorious, I will die. But then I got married and realized it wasn't glorious. And toilet paper needed to go on the roll so it comes over the top.
Now, to me, as long as you can reach it, that's all that matters, right? Why would you make a bed if you're going to sleep in it the next day? What is wrong with eating out of the same pot you use to cook food in? Why dirty something else? Right? What is wrong with using the floor to store laundry? That's no more sacred. I mean, drawers are not more sacred or closets. And so what I learned was if it involved hailing, I was great. And if it would involve fighting off a burglar or storming a cockpit or doing something glorious, I'd be in in a heartbeat. But if it involved getting up at three in the morning to get the kid, if it involved saying no to things I wanted to do so I could be fully present with her, if it involved listening when I wanted to speak and speaking when I didn't want to speak at all, if it involved that kind of dying, death to my ambitions, death to my entitlements, death to my selfishness, well, that was a whole lot harder. <laughs> Said the voice of wisdom. Now, we'll come back to this passage, absolutely. But ladies, if you knew that the predominant habit of your significant other was to put your well-being ahead of his own, would you have a, have a problem reciprocating? Not even remotely. See, when she says, I delight to sit in his shade, what's that kind of person look like? Well, according to the scriptures, that kind of person looks a lot like Jesus. Now, that's good news and bad news. <laughs> because last I checked, he's Messiah, I am not. Right? He was fully human and fully God. I'm only one half of that equation. I need lots of work and lots of help. But it didn't. No one told me that the most exhaustive renovation of my character would come when I said I do. Because what is natural in our fallen world is for men to claim their entitlements and their rights. And the most natural thing in the world is for sisters to either resent the dudes, be doormats, or fight for power. And all the married people said, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. But what is Jesus called to do instead? To embody the gospel. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So men, some of you are thinking, yeah, but you don't know the woman I live with. <laughs> to which I would say, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Guess who gets to start the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. We do. Now, ladies, you might be here, and you might be thinking, well, all of this sounds fine in theory, but I, I didn't know the name of my man until too late. Or I didn't know the name of my wife until too late. And now we're kind of stuck. We're going to be talking a lot about what happens with that. My encouragement to you for now is just Keep coming. Keep, keep opening yourselves up to these conversations. We'll get there. But what I want to hold out is simply this idea. 
You show me a guy who would lay down his real life, not just in glory, but in self-sacrificial love for his wife, and I will show you a wife who will say, I delight to sit in his shade. That's the ideal. Do all of us fall short? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question. That's not even the issue. But let's not our imperfection water down what the call is. The call, brothers, if you're dating or you're married, is to embody this Jesus. So girlfriends, let's talk about who you date for a second. Because there are two kind of dudes. Guys who fundamentally walk around asking, what can I get? And guys that walk around asking, what can I give? And I know that's oversimplifying, but fundamentally, they'll be one or the other. And unfortunately, the second is much rarer than the first. So I simply ask you, if you're here and you're dating, do you see any hint of a man who would be willing to put your interests ahead of his own? Or does he punish? Is he entitled? Is he jealous and angry and insecure? Might I simply suggest that there is no switch that will be flipped should you marry a young man like this, where magically he will now be noble and virtuous the day after the wedding. If anything, marriage takes a spotlight and makes our issues even more obvious. Married folks, can I get an amen? <laughs> it's so true. Oh my goodness. And then you throw kids in and it's just horrible. <laughs> so if you're here and you're single, doggone it. It is better to be single and lonely than it is to be married and lonely. Do you get me? I mean, I'm not, do not settle for the warm body thing. Do not settle. And one of the amazing things, flip if you would, go back to the book of Psalms. There's this amazing promise given. Go to, the, go to Psalms Oh, what is it? I think it's 17. Psalms chapter 17. Then we'll go, we'll go over this real quick and then we'll do some questions. Verse 7. If you don't know where Psalms is, just kind of open in the middle. <laughs> You'll be close. Verse 7. Show me the wonders of your great love. You who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from your foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now the word, the word shadow here is the same word we use for shade. So you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't have somebody of whom I can say I delight to sit in his shade. And what the, what the biblical writer does here is, no, you actually do. There is a shade of God Almighty that seeks to protect and enfold those who are vulnerable. And that, that isn't a religious cliche. Flip over to, to Psalm 68. Go to verse 5. Psalm 68, 5. A father to the fatherless... A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. 
He sets the lonely in what? In families. Now understand, that doesn't always mean biological family. When I was a single guy, for whatever reason, I, well, no, it, it's a very obvious reason. I would show up around certain families' houses around dinner time <laughs> and just happen to drop by. You know, I was a youth pastor, I was making no money, and I just thought, you know what, I, have, I got nothing, wasn't dating anybody, so I would just, there were two or three families that I would just show up, and I would spend holidays with, and, and you, know what was, you know what was amazing to me? I didn't know at the time what God was doing, but he was setting me in a family. And that family wasn't my biological family, which had fragmented but it was families that God put in at just the right time to show me the possibilities of what healthy, godly relationships look like. And so if you're here and you're lonely, you're here and you're single, you're here and you're a bit miserable, and you say, hey, this is all fine, but I can't find one of those people. That we, we just wanna suggest that God has a special place for those who are brokenhearted in such ways. Don't give up hope. Now, what I've learned is that hope doesn't always mean he'll do what you want. If, if you could figure that out, please tell me. We'll write a book. We'll sell zillions of copies. It'll be fantastic. What I found hope means he won't leave us or abandon us, and he'll be with us in whatever it is we're wrestling with. So, brothers and sisters, Tonight, we start simply with the recognition that she looks at a man and she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Hallelujah for attraction and romance. But she also comments on his name. His name is like perfume poured out. It won't change. So men, let's have a name worthy. Could it be said of us, my lover is to me a sachet of myrrh. He brings out the best in me. Or the most poetic and powerful image to me in my marriage is simply this. That my wife would say of me, I delight to sit in his shade. I am safe. Now I'd like her to say the next part too. His fruit is sweet to my taste. But that's, we'll talk about that one. We'll talk about that. I'm just going for the first one to start. All right. Way to ruin that moment. <laughs> All right, so um, your questions, the questions you text in are anonymous. We had over 70 last week, um, and uh, they were incredibly powerful. Some we don't put up because we're going to get to these topics down the road, uh, but I want you to know we're not keeping that information. There's it's totally anonymous, and we wanted to do it this way so you'd feel perfectly comfortable sharing what's really on your mind. So with that, let's fire up the questions. I have been married over 25 years. I would love sex with my wife. I would love sex with my wife once a week, but once or twice a month is more her reality. Is it okay, therefore, to masturbate to meet my own needs? Well, why don't we just talk about something very controversial right now? That would be fantastic. <laughs> no, that's awesome. All right. First of all, this is awesome. First of all, and we said this last one, we'll keep saying it. Young men, look at me. I 
have long struggled with pornography. The lie I heard was that if I could just get married, that struggle would go away. I would be having so much sex with my wife that I would never be tempted to lust again. That, maybe that was true for the first three days. <laughs> and I told you last week, remember the premarital questionnaire I filled out? Okay, so I came in with wildly, I, if you weren't here, I, I, I had written that I wanted to have sex 15 times a week. My wife put two a week and she was much closer uh, to reality. Uh, on a good week, e even. Um, <laughs> so, first, guys, the lie is all you got to do is get married and the, then the battle is over. That's not true. If you struggle with us before, you will struggle with us after. If you struggle with self-control before, you will struggle with self-control after. That doesn't mean you can't progress, Jesus can't heal. I mean, he's done incredible work in me. But the point simply is, that is a very realistic question. Right? The number of married couples, especially, now, sometimes it's women, but most of the time it's guys, who would love to engage in more intimacy. Right? It's pretty staggering. And my wife and I talk about this. I told her, by the way, about the lap dance story last week. I told her, she rolled her eyes, she said, well, it's still never happening, and then we just kind of moved on. <laughs> She's awesome, you just you can't even phase her. So, so, <laughs> oh. So, so one of the things that happens in really healthy marriages is you're constantly talking back and forth about how can I initiate in a way that doesn't put pressure on you? She will say, how can I say no in a way that doesn't feel like personal rejection? I have three kids, I teach full time. By about eight o'clock, I am dead. So how do you manage that? Let's talk about masturbation briefly and then talk about it in marriage. Interestingly, the Bible doesn't mention it. There is an episode in Genesis where it talks about a guy spilling his seed on the ground. And if you read the context, it's the guy got in trouble because he wasn't fulfilling a law called leveret marriage, which meant the husband of this woman had died and it was his job as the brother to produce offspring in the dead brother's name. That sounds really weird. I know, but this was a law. And so he refused to do that. And that was that issue. Some people will say, yeah, but doesn't Jesus say if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off? I'm thinking maybe you're reading something back into that that wasn't, that wasn't there. Um, I, I, that wasn't talking about that. So it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me that the most universal struggle sexually doesn't get much mentioned. What gets mentioned, of course, is Jesus' very famous statement on lust. Now, I've talked to guys who say, I can masturbate without lusting. To which I say, well, if that's true, I see no, unless you're, unless you're addicted to it, unless, uh, unless it's compulsive, I, I don't see a biblical prohibition here, except wisdom. So in this instance, if you're able to think about your wife, if you're able to recollect on time you've had with her, 
I don't see why you couldn't accept just these provisions if it's compulsive or if it's a substitute for intimacy with her. And that's the danger. The danger is it's just easier to take care of it myself than to do the hard work of initiating and negotiating and her saying no and me saying yes and, right? Married folks, can I get an amen? Don't, don't get all quiet on me right now. You guys are all just kind of like, well, how does he know? <sighs> Nothing to see here. So, so I would say, I would say very carefully, yeah. But I don't see why your wife couldn't help. I mean, I've asked, oh, I shouldn't even say these things. <laughs> Next question. How do you start submitting to your husband? What does that start look like? Wow, okay, great question. Couple of thoughts. First thought, pray for him. On a regular basis, would you pray that the Holy Spirit of God would give him a hunger and a thirst to be the kind of man that you could trust? Secondly, psychologists and sociologists talk about if talk about how people will live up to your expectations of them. So if you expect your children to misbehave, guess what they'll do? They'll misbehave. So what if you actually started to treat your husband as if he was worthy of respect, even if you weren't quite sure? Or you started to treat your spouse as if she were worthy of your sacrifice, even though you weren't quite sure. There's some indication that what will actually happen is that people will begin to embody the expectations and the way that you treat them. In fact, this is what God does with us, by the way. It's called eschatological realism, and that's a fancy way of simply saying that God loves you into your future. He declares you holy in Jesus before you're really holy. And it's because you're declared holy that you have the freedom to imperfectly learn to be what's already true of you. And so one of the things I would suggest is that you love, pray for, trust your guy. Submit here, again, doesn't mean he gets final say on every decision. That's not what this is saying. It's saying the predominant practice as a disciple of Jesus is to look out for other people's interests ahead of your own. Wives, do this to your husbands. So how do you practically start that? For me, I mean, here's, <laughs> honey, is there any area in our marriage where I'm frustrating you? Do you think my wife has a ready answer for that question every time I ask it? <laughs> How about you just ask that and see what happens? Next, great questions, doggone it. Any help for a husband who is no longer attracted to his wife due to her gaining significant weight? Oh, yes, I was that spouse. No, I'm not kidding. Uh, I told you last time, I, I, I ran a marathon at 32, believe it or not, LA mar Marathon. They have a class of runner called Clydesdale, okay? <laughs> so I was in the Clydesdale division. Ran the marathon, finished it, survived. Uh, and then, uh, a, a year later, I blew out my ACL, 
Went into surgery, came out of surgery, started having panic attacks, depression. Four years later, went on medication, gained 50 pounds. Would look at myself in the mirror and be completely embarrassed. My wife, I would just ask her, honey, how can you even be attracted to me? I mean, what you married and what I look like now are just two totally different things. I was just humiliated. I, I just, there, were, there were times I just didn't even want to take the shirt off. And so I'd just make jokes about it, you know, be kind of the funny sort of hefty dude. And my wife will say now, it was a struggle for her. Not that I'm you know, totally buff at this juncture, <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> well, but she would say it was a struggle. And, and she tried shaming and she tried guilting. But then at some point, she just determined in her heart uh, to love me just the way that I was and to c communicate only that love and affection. And you know what began to happen? I began to thaw out. I began to get motivated. I began to just begin to wage the war, not out of guilt and shame, but out of being worthy of such love. So I've been on the opposite side. I've been the spouse that's gained the weight. And granted, typically we're a bit more visual, and so I always had that in my favor uh, for my sweet wife. But we fought that battle together. So might I gently suggest that you be ruthless in waging war in guarding your eyes from all of the airbrushed perfect images. And, would, and I know this sounds so cheesy, but I've actually seen it work, that you would begin to pray that God would give you sexual desire for your wife and that you would initiate with her in the most tender ways to protect, because she knows. She's not, she knows, she knows, she knows. She knows that you know. And so you can either take that insecurity and withdraw, or you can take that insecurity and by God's mercy, wrap it and bathe it in unconditional love. And if you do that, everything else will begin to change. It's not easy, brother. It's not easy. No way, shape, or form is it easy but it doesn't help that we're constantly bombarding ourselves with airbrushed images of perfection either. Next question. I'm dating a girl, the girl, I will marry her next year. But is it okay that we're having sex? Both of us consider ourselves married before God already. Well then freaking get married! <laughs> I mean, why wait a dumb year? If you're married, stand right here. I'm a pastor licensed in the state of California, and let's do this. Why risk it? What you're doing, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this. If you're unwilling to control yourselves and to honor and protect each other now, it will be a struggle afterwards. You say, yeah, but we're married already. What's a piece of paper? Marriage is not a piece of paper. In the Bible, it's a covenant. And a covenant involves three parties. The two making the covenant and witnesses. So, you saying, hey, we're all good. 
In God's eyes, you're not. And it's very, very easy over, in, over the next year. See, the way God designed sexuality, <laughs> anything that is powerful has rules that govern its use, right? Is it, is it arbitrary and unfair when the electrician comes into your home and says, hey, don't put your finger in the electric socket? Is that unfair? No. So what the scripture is going to suggest is, listen, the only thing powerful enough to handle the damage that sexuality can do or the good that sexuality can do is a lifelong commitment to each other so that you work it out. It is a place where you actually are forced to engage in your sinfulness and to learn to become more and more like Jesus. When she says no or he says no, I mean, it's a place of growth and sanctification. And what you're doing is you're taking it out of that context and you're saying, no, 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 we're married in our hearts already. Well, then get married. I mean, ladies, if any time a guy pressures you into having sex, simply say this, all right, here's your line. I would love to have sex with you. In fact, I can think of nothing better my whole life has been created for that first moment. You are the pinnacle of masculinity. Now, the guy will actually, the guy will actually believe this, okay? He will actually believe that you believe this. So here's what you say. So here's what you say. So just before we make sweet, passionate love, let's get our friends and family together and you promise that you'll love me until your dying breath. And then we'll have sex. <laughs> and see if he thinks you're worth that. Boom. <laughs> All right, what time is it? All right, let's do a couple more. Is pornography adultery? My hubby thinks, my hubby thinks it is not because he hasn't physically touched anyone. I took my wedding ring off because to me, when he masturbates to the image of other women wishing he could have sex with them, he is having sex. Well, Jesus was pretty clear on this one, <laughs> right? If a man lusts after a woman in his heart, he has committed adultery with her. Now, Listen to me. Jesus here isn't giving new law. But what he's saying is simply this. The religious people of his day made a really big deal of not, they defined adultery as literally phys physical body parts touching. So if, if a Pharisee fell off a roof and landed face down on a woman who was on the ground laying face up, <laughs> hypothetically, they would have been considered having adultery, okay, committing adultery. Adultery to them was body parts. What's Jesus say it is? It's an issue of the heart. Now, is physical adultery different than adultery with images? Well, there, is, there are differences. Of course there are differences. But pornography is an expression of infidelity. Because what it's saying is that you are not enough. You're not enough. I need these other airbrushed things to really get me going. And let me ask you, do you want to introduce that into the sacred nature of the marriage bed? Absolutely not. So I wouldn't say it's adultery, I'd just say it's infidelity. Because uh, he's playing the Pharisee game. Well, I'm not physically touching anyone, to which Jesus would say, 
Adultery isn't about physically touching. It's about the heart. And if, now, I struggle with pornography, okay? I've been very open and honest about this. So I'm not speaking as one who has got it all figured out and, and put together. I live in a very accountable relationship. Every website I go to gets emailed to accountability guys. I mean, it's crazy what I have to do. And it's not because I'm a raging pornographer, but it's because I could be. And when I first confessed this to my wife, you know what she said? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why isn't my naked body enough for you? So the call to fidelity in marriage isn't just physical. It's emotional and mental too. Last question. I'm a Christian, but my fiance isn't. Should I call the wedding off? Boy, that's a great question. Oh my goodness. <sighs> Look at me for a second. The answers to these questions are embedded in a big story we're trying to tell piece by piece. Okay? So, one of the emails I got was uh, over the week was just, well, you're still saying thou shalt not. You're just trying to dress it up. And actually, that's not what I'm trying to do. We want to put sex in its place. Our culture glorifies it, and the church ignores it, and we say both are wrong. We say it just needs to be put in its place. That means it's possible to live with unfulfilled desires and still be fully human. It's possible to be single and sexual. It's possible to be married and sexual. It's possible to live a godly life and be fully sexual. We just hear that and go, no, no, if you're sexual, that means you're living out every impulse you have. Well, that's not true. That's not how the scriptures define it. So when you talk about marriage and covenant, I would caution you greatly against marrying somebody who does not share your commitment to Jesus. Why? Because your commitment to Jesus, if it's a real commitment, should be so foundational to you that it shapes the trajectory of everything. How you spend your money, how you parent, where you live, what you do, how you recreate. And to have somebody who does not share that level of commitment will introduce nothing but frustration to you. You may say, and by the way, more self-disclosure, I was uh, very deeply involved with a young lady um, who became a Christian because I pressured her to, but was, it was obvious that uh, we just were at different levels. And I just finally had a, a, a dear brother friend of mine say, you're kind of deluding yourself here, man. There's no way that's going to work. Now, what happens if, you're, if two non-Christians get married, one of them becomes a Christian and the other doesn't? Well, Paul says, stay together. You may win your husband or wife through your witness. But my counsel to you, not guilting or shaming this other person, but whenever you wrap love and following Jesus together, the temptation will be for him to say yes to Jesus in order to get you. And then he will resent down the road you for making him make that decision that he didn't really mean, but did it just to be married to you. And so I would just simply caution you to wait. To wait. Until he either figures it out 
or until you find somebody whose commitment to Christ matches your own. Now, I would imagine we've raised just as many questions as we've answered. I would imagine there's some of you that don't agree with things I've said. Welcome to the club. The goal isn't for you to agree with me. The goal is for you to begin to open yourself up to a conversation that simply connects God and sexuality, maybe in ways it never has before. I mean, I, I talked to a young lady last time who'd been raped. What does she do with that? Or somebody who came as a lesbian. Does she welcome here? I mean, we've done such a bad job communicating the good news of Jesus in areas of real brokenness. That we simply want to say, this is just the beginning of conversation, brothers and sisters. Please continue to talk and wrestle. The goal isn't a bunch of folks that just say, well, the, the guy on stage said it, so it must be true. The goal instead is to become people who live in submission to this living, breathing Jesus and see what he does. So would you close your eyes? And I just want to pray, and I'm going to invite our care teams to get up and either come down front or into the prayer room. But I just want to pray for us, because I would imagine there are a few of us here who are really discouraged, a few of us who are really hopeful, a few of us that are really convicted, a few of us that are just frustrated as all get out. Many of the questions we're wrestling with, we're going to talk about in future weeks, so don't give up. Keep coming. There's so much more to say. And so, Holy Father, you know the secrets of every single person in this room. There is not one thing that surprises you. You know the disappointments, the darkness. You know the lusts. You know the sins. You know the, the numbness. I mean, you know the whole thing. And so my prayer very simply is this, that you would begin to set your children free. And that you would bring grace and truth. God, not one of us measures up to this standard. Not one of us. And so we call on you to come and rescue us. For the lonely, we pray that you would draw near. Place the lonely in families. For those that are married and struggling, mighty God, would you just give them another week's worth of hope that maybe, just maybe, you're up to something. For those wrestling with sexual identity and sexual preference and orientation, God, would you give them grace to see beyond the stereotypes of our culture and to just simply be open to what it is that you might say. For those who are addicted to porn and who want to justify, God, would you break through our denials and show us the ugliness of what this is and what it does. So, Father, bring conviction where conviction's needed, but please bring hope where hope is needed. Mighty God, we're so vulnerable and tender in these areas. We live with disappointment, resentment. And so please come, Lord Jesus, come, Holy Spirit. Bring healing and bring hope. And it's the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, men and women, we're going to turn on a little house music. If we 
can pray for you. We'll just be down here. No one's, <laughs> these are all screw-ups just like me. And, and so you're just going to find, I mean, I'm speaking for, for you guys, but I, I, I can safely say. There are also folks over in the prayer room, if you'd like a bit more privacy, if you're not comfortable kind of coming down front, be a crew of us over there too. But if there's heaviness here and you have nobody else to wrestle with and these sorts of issues, would you please let us help you? We're not coming in judgment. We don't have rocks we're going to be throwing. We just want to be helpful. You were not made to carry some of these issues by yourself. You just simply weren't. And so let us be a family to you, okay? So I'm so glad you were here. Thank you that you would take time. It's amazing how a 3,000-year-old love poem still speaks to us. For as modern and technological as we are, there's still something beautiful about seeing what God intended. So, stand up. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine His face upon you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you and give you peace. Go in grace and truth. Amen. Thank you guys so much for being here. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast. And now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.